only independent podcasts and so on. They are keeping our democracy and freedom, which really is under threat. They are keeping it alive. So please give them any financial help you can. It's a good investment, not immediately, but in the long term. It's not that you get something for it, but in the spiritual sense, the air intellectual that you are breathing will be much better. So please give the money to Novara Media and you will sleep better. You know what fascism is. You can point to it easily. It's jackboots and marching and powerful symbols and death camps. But at the same time, fascism is one of the most slippery of all political categories. Almost everyone agrees it's necessary to keep alerts to the threat of its return. And yet some definitions of fascism seem determined to lock it safely away in the 1930s and 40s. And working out exactly what the contemporary far right has in common with the Nazis or Mussolini's regime is hard. Every claim that some person or something is fascist seems to trigger a series of reasons why things now are fundamentally different. Every similarity with the period of classical fascism one can point to also highlights conspicuous differences. But what if we were to stop thinking about fascism in terms of these simplistic comparisons with the past? That's the suggestion of Alberto Toscano, an associate professor at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. In his new book, Late Fascism, Alberto draws on W.E.B. Du Bois to describe fascism as the counter-revolution of property, in a way that allows us to think through fascism's instantiations, not just in its classical period, but now, and crucially, back into its colonial past. That formulation allows us to grasp what we might call with the black radical tradition, the broader concept of racial fascism. I'm Richard Ames, and in this episode, I asked Alberto how to think about fascism now and what we should hold onto as fascism splits itself and reforms. Alberto Toscano, welcome to Navarra FM. Thanks for having me. The first question I have is quite a basic, but in some ways like very complicated question at the same time, which is the basic motivational question. Why should we care about fascism now? Why does it matter that we theorize it correctly? What are the stakes of getting it right theoretically? In some ways, it seems very easy to theorize fascism. It's jackboots and um, marches and death camps and so on. We can point to these things and we can say these things are bad, these things are dangerous. Why do we need a more sophisticated version than a sort of a identifier for fascism? Yeah, so... The book uh, emerged out of wanting to um, respond to the obvious increase in talk of fascism, including in very mainstream venues, including by very prominent figures. 
and my own um, frustration uh, and disquiet about the political consequences of certain framings of fascism. Um, so on the one hand, my feeling, which I then tried to corroborate through research, that uh, there were still a lot of resources for our current thinking and even potentially for political strategies in the long archive of, of theories of fascism. But at the same time, the sense that the ways in which fascism was being talked about were deeply limiting or even misleading. And by way of shorthand, I suppose the book emerged out of the sense that what for want of a better word, but maybe it's the right word, a liberal framing of fascism or a liberal anti-fascism, which I guess in the final analysis, I would want to argue is not really an anti-fascism, that these were very problematic and uh, a really inadequate response to the kind of politics that that we're seeing. And I suppose the approach that I took was to think first and foremost why they were inadequate as theories or framings rather than necessarily immediately as political tactics or strategies. And within that, I homed in on the question of uh, analogy or of ways of thinking of the present by its likeness or its superficial likeness to the past as really one of the leitmotifs, one of the constant refrains of these discourses of fascism, but also what made it very difficult or at times impossible to draw on those theories of fascism. So I suppose it's the wager is that we both need to uh, think and theorize and articulate what fascism uh, might mean today, but also that we need to be very wary of the kind of fascination even that the jackboots and the camps and so on will have on our on our political imagination, right? Absolutely, yeah. There's a kind of technique of analogy that you're pointing to here, a sense that something is the same, but also perhaps something is different. But the thing that is the same, we can say that's more fundamental, that's more core to fascism than the things that are quite perhaps quite superficially different. And that's a technique that is often used in order to produce checklists. So a sense are there are these seven characteristics of fascism. And if we have more than five of them at any given time, then we're looking at a fascist state and so on. Also, kind of similarly to this, we get some of these sort of stage models, right? This sense that, okay, we're now in stage one of building up to fascism. Once we reach stage three, then this start, thing starts to happen, stage five, and then we're in fascism proper and so on. So how do we then move beyond those kinds of notions methodologically? What is the technique of disanalogy? What does it mean to think disanalogically? Well, I, th I suppose it's both thinking disanalogically and thinking non-analogically, right? So thinking disanalogically, I guess, was where I started by thinking... What is it about the present that even if it seems to call for the language or the optic of fascism really bears very little similarity to the context of 
the historical European fascisms of the interwar period that we are familiar with. And there's a whole number, um, uh, potentially countless number of features of our present that are, of course, deeply dissimilar to that moment. And, and you know, many people who've argued against the relevance of a fascist framework to the present will underscore precisely those features, right? So I'm thinking of a number of interventions, say, by someone like Bill and Riley in the New Left Review and, and others, right? Um, we don't live in an age of mass conscription. Most adult males haven't already participated in war or been mobilized for it. The nature of the capitalist or economic crises that we're facing are radically different. The right-wing movements that we see do not operate as mass movements in the same way that the context of the 20s and 30s demonstrated and so on and so forth. So I think that, you know, that's a, a start, a healthy starting point, let's see, right? But the result of that could be, and that's where I suppose I would part ways maybe with somebody like Riley, the result of that could be just to say, well, the question of fascism totally irrelevant to the present. We don't live in an age of mass movements. We don't see the same inter-imperialist struggles and dynamics of the interwar period. So we should turn to uh, other uh, languages and other frames for authoritarian politics, right? We might want to revive the language of Bonapartism. We might want to talk about authoritarian neoliberalism or a number of other features. And I think there's a lot to be gained from uh, uh, many of those interventions. But what I wanted to do was to really think, well, what if instead of just um, dismissing the language of fascism, we try to think through or try to return to um, theories of and debates about fascism that didn't uh, accept that uh, limited analogical frame, right? And I suppose there's two broad families of um, theorization that I turn to in the book, which of course also overlap with the more classical or traditional Marxist debates about fascism. So the first would be the black radical or black radical Marxist theories of fascism that emerged already in the 1920s and that have a long, uh, a long history uh, punctuated by, um, of course, events like the uh, Italian invasion of Ethiopia and the solidarity movements around that, or indeed the response to the um, continuation of racial colonial capitalist domination after the supposed uh, defeat of uh, European fascisms in the immediate post-war period, right? And of course, there's very uh, emblematic texts in that tradition. Uh, the most often cited one being, I suppose, Aimé Césaire's uh, Discourse on Colonialism. But of course, there's a very deep and, and varied set of um, resources and, and arguments there, including the writings of C.L.R. James, uh, Suzanne Césaire, uh, George Padmore, and, and many others. Um, the 
political thinker, uh, Cedric Robinson, author of Black Marxism, um, had a, a book which he never uh, finished, but of which there are some uh, elements and, and, and extracts around uh, on black, the black response to fascism. And I think that that text or one of the texts from that book on, on black theorists of fascism was very influential on my on my framing. Right. And then secondly, and related to that, is the fact that uh, in the wake of the movements uh, of the so-called global 60s, in the context of that proto-revolutionary wave, and of course the context of decolonization that it occurred in, you had across the world really a number of efforts to theorize what I guess at the time often was referred to as a new fascism, right? in terms of the specific counter-revolutionary responses to that moment. Some of that came from uh, black radical or liberationist tradition. So in the book, I deal with the writings, the prison writings of Angela Davis and George Jackson, among others. But this is something we also encounter in the French and Italian context, which we also encounter in the Palestinian liberation movement, which we also see in the far left in Japan, and, and we see a lot of, uh, and, and possibly the more sophisticated version of this debate, uh, which I don't deal with in the book, but I do in an essay that's hopefully coming out next year in Latin America, where there's an extremely rich and sophisticated debate in the context of the military dictatorships of the 1970s about whether or not the discussion of fascism is relevant. And I think across both of these um, traditions or rough families of, of, of debate and theorizing, um, there is an insight into the notion of fascism as what Angela Davis herself called a process rather than just a static regime or governmental form. So a way of thinking it more dynamically and historically. And of course, an effort to both link fascism to a much longer history of imperialism and settler colonialism as its genesis, but also its consequence and its uh, uh, context. Uh, and uh, an effort, again, in the critique of a liberal framing of fascism, of seeing the presence, the seeds or enclaves or areas of um, the kind of racial terror that we associate with fascism occurring in um, regimes or states that perceive of themselves or are perceived as liberal as well. This is kind of comes back to one thing you said in your first answer, which I think I want to pick up on, which is that a liberal anti-fascism in some final sense is not actually an anti-fascism because liberalism has this sort of terrifying Mobius strip quality with fascism. There's sort of a, a sense of the two beings being in some sense like weaved together. I'm getting a general sense from your answer of a, a kind of very sprawling account of fascism, a sense that fascism is not neatly contained to these two boxes that we like to put it in the 20th century, Mussolini's Italy, Hitler's Germany, but instead a much longer process or informs or guides a much longer process of colonial domination. Um, and yet there is something that you identify quite early on in the book that links all these things together, which is the counter-revolution of property. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us why this functions as such a useful insight into the nature of fascism 
even through these sprawling set of historical examples, what is it about the counter-revolution of property that lets us see something clearly? So that's a formulation that, of course, comes from W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, Black Reconstruction, uh, a text which the um, poet and, and political activist Amiri Baraka presented, I think, in the 1990s as as a theory of racial fascism. Now, it's intriguing because Du Bois, I think, only uses the term fascism uh, on, on a couple of instances. But he also proposes uh, a set of really striking analyses in that book. One is, of course, to link the counter-revolution against the revolution that Du Bois saw in Black Reconstruction as itself formative of late 19th century and 20th century imperialism, right? So uh, Du Bois sees or asks us to see or incites us to see the emergence of fascism in that longer historical arc, right? And I think that's important. That's important also to think of the ways in which Italian fascism and, and German Nazism already emerge in a context of rising U.S. global hegemony, and that U.S. state is also the product, right, of this brutal compromise in many ways, the suppression of radical reconstruction, and basically the regionalization of racial fascism as a, a embedded uh, feature of the U.S. South, right, Jim Crow, and so on and so forth. I think uh, the question of the counter-revolution of property, of course, can be also taken, and I guess that that's what you're also suggesting, I think rightly, can be taken outside of that specific framing and, and perhaps treated as um, a broader category or, or name for that fascist dynamic. Um, and I part of the reason why I think that's useful is because I do think I do think the question of counter-revolution is central. Of course, it's historically central to theories of fascism, and it's still significant. But we're, of course, faced, and this is where one of the disanalogies comes in, we're faced with thinking about what it means to talk about fascism where the reactionary or authoritarian movements that we're witnessing in the present are not responding to what we could say is a clear revolutionary moment or conjuncture, right? They're responding to a number of emergent or incipient challenges, uh, sometimes quite radical, often rather momentary or passing. So we can think of everything from the Occupy movement to the Arab Spring to more recently the George Floyd rebellion, right? These obviously pose certainly a context. You can't say that they're revolutionary movements in the ways that the fascisms of the 20s and 30s were responding to. But they're definitely, um, however, in however embryonic a fashion, right, challenges to a certain status quo. Um, and I think what the other thing that Du Bois um, lets us see, or, or, or reading fascism through the optic, maybe, of, of Black Reconstruction, is a way in which that property that he speaks about is um, organized as a kind of racial regime, right? And, 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 a, and a state mediated racial regime. And so that 
that is one of the uh, core interests and core drivers of contemporary fascist politics, right? Or politics that that we can think of as part of a, a broader fascist process, right? So if we think of the the links between the phenomenon of bolsonarismo in 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 Brazil to the repression of the landless movement of indigenous people, the uh, backing of the most violent uh, forms of the defense of uh, landed capitalist privileges and the latifundios, etc. And, and we can think of numerous other contexts, right? And I think that, that I suppose is also uh, uh, one of the axes of self-criticism or retro retrospective uh, auto-critique about the book is that I think, you know, in, in many ways, though I gesture towards it, one of the things that's really necessary also for strategic purposes, I suppose, is to think more systematically and, of course, in a more granular and localized way about what that nexus is, right, between the the, the politics of the far right and the complex political economy of that emergent right. And, and, and those differ fairly substantively, right, uh, across different contexts. Um, none of these movements, of course, get anywhere without a serious level of buy-in from important fractions of capital and business and, and social elites of, of different sorts, but often in a very contradictory and complex way, right? Which doesn't, again, analogize cleanly to the political economy of German fascism or the political economy of Italian fascism. And yet there are, in some ways, some characteristics. I mean, you you draw in Neumann's work um, on the what he calls the non-state state, or the anti-state state, uh, as a sort of a strange coalition of actors who never quite form themselves into this singular totalitarian vision in fascism. We have this I think, received notion of fascism as a um, singularly totalitarian state overbearing, crushing its populace. And yet there's significantly more sort of chaos inside that. And that becomes quite an important moment in your account of how fascism relates to the question of the state. And I think that allows us in some sense to see some level of, perhaps analogy is too simple, but something there with neoliberalism as well. When we think about the relationship between neoliberalism and its apparent disavowal of the state and yet it's sort of use of the state in other ways as well. So how do you see these two things sort of working together, this sense of the disavowal of the of the state and its simultaneous utilization? I think one of the important um, realizations, I suppose, that lay behind some of the work in the book, uh, and some of it came definitely through the reading of uh, Neumann's uh, you know, masterpiece, uh, Behemoth, was the understanding that a received and we could say Cold War framing or liberal Cold War framing of fascism as the totalitarian enactment and celebration of the all-powerful state was not just limiting in how it stopped us from understanding our own conjuncture, but also provided an extremely skewed and selective 
vision of the politics and the political economy of the 20s and 30s. And also served to divert us from the question of the counter-revolution of property by, of course, presenting fascism as a kind of statism and therefore explicitly or implicitly in continuity with a kind of state socialism, thus creating this amalgam category of, of totalitarianism. Uh, I was, you know, though, of course, I, I knew um, peripherally uh, about the entanglements of Italian fascism with Italian liberals, a topic that's been dealt with in a really masterful way recently uh, in comparison, actually, with Britain in uh, Mattei's book, uh, The Capital Order, I think it's is the title of the book, uh, really brilliant study in that regard. Uh, at the same time, I was I hadn't quite gotten the measure of that phenomenon, phenomenon until uh, in order to write a short piece on uh, the dreaded 100th anniversary of the March on Rome, I ended up just trying to systematically read all the speeches of uh, Mussolini from 1921-22, which have been collected recently in Italian by a great uh, Gramscian uh, scholar, Flozini. In any case, in those texts, you see over and over slogans, formulations, mottos that are impeccably uh, liberal or indeed sound like foreshadowings of neoliberalism, right? We must remove the state from the public sector, you know, we must we must undo, we must starve the state in a sense, right? As it pertains to railways, hospitals, high schools, etc., right? This idea of a lean or a watchman state and this explicit presentation of fascism as armed violence to reestablish the Manchester state, as Mussolini himself puts it in these speeches, I think was really striking because it then suggests that this is not, you know, if we are going to have a checklist, which we probably shouldn't, but if we are going to have a checklist, then the all-powerful state understood as the state, which is also a kind of dirigiste or planner state, etc., is not, you know, a, a, a sine qua non of, of fascism. And I think that's really important because it it breaks apart one of the principal planks of that analogical frame. Likewise, I and I talk about this in the book, uh, I was really uh, struck by some of the research by the French historian of Nazism, Johann Chapoutot, on the entanglements between Nazi jurists and Nazi intellectuals and the history of management science and the particular conceptions of enterprise and, 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 and freedom, uh, very disturbing and weird kind of freedom, but freedom nevertheless, that were part of that Nazi discourse. And actually, the same people who Chaputeau writes about, namely the post-war guru of German management science, Reinhard Hohn, uh, is one of the figures who appears, of course, in uh, Franz Neumann's Behemoth as a critic of Carl Schmitt, right? And as a critic within Nazism of the idea that uh, that National Socialism was anchored in the all-powerful state. And in fact, Hun, together with uh, other jurists, I think Werner Best was another one, etc., are the ones who actually argue for what, um, you know, we could say is a kind of 
perverse, racialized, withering away of the state, right? For the sake of um, uh, race, movement, the party perhaps even, but definitely not uh, an orientation towards, towards the state, which we've taken as synonymous, right? With Nazism, we've also associated fascism and uh, fascism overdetermined by Nazism, of course, and by what we know of Nazism, as itself being linked to a kind of pathology of bureaucratization, right? And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that that's not a salient element, but I think the resistance to that uh, monolithic perspective in uh, Chaputeau or in Matei's work is really significant because it, it also allows us to think of different continuities or different threads and again to undermine the basis for that analogy which is a completely streamlined model which is itself a product of the cold war uh, i think once we undo that and once we're also much more attentive as other historical work like um, james whitman's hitler's american model about the relationship between nazism and u.s legal thought uh, once we become more attuned also to the relationships and continuities with colonial histories, then I think we have a much uh, richer, more nuanced um, historical framework in which not to think analogically, but to think relationally about what is happening uh, in our moment and, and previous historical and political processes. I think it might be surprising to some people even to discover that there were debates within the Nazis. As I think there's a sort of received image that we have that Hitler decided what would happen and then everyone simply did what he did as if they were sort of robots and automatons. And there's something quite sort of self-conscious in the debates around the state. There's something sort of that is trying to work itself out very clearly. And the same is sort of true of the discussion of myth, that myth becomes this technology that is self-consciously adopted by the fascists, particularly around uh, Mussolini. And I'm wondering if you could speak a bit to how you might see some perhaps relations between the way that myth is used in Mussolini's regime and the way in which conspiracy functions now as a sort of a technology for weaving together people who we might think as critics of these movements don't properly have the kinds of relations that they mm. purport to have. Can you clarify the last point about the critics of the movements? So in some ways, there's a, a sense that myth is this technology that allows for what we would think as critics on the left of the rights movements are what you describe at another point in the book as mere serialities. Mm -hmm. The people who are related to each other in the way that people in Sartre's sort of classic image as people who are waiting in line mm -hmm. for a bus, mm -hmm. right? They are merely functions of the bus, right? They have no relationship between themselves. And fascism is expert at organizing mere serialities, mere collections of people into this notion of the nation, the race, the Volk, the people, and so on. It strikes me that there's something in the sort of distribution of myths. You might think of the, the classic films of the Nazi period, Triumph of the Will, for example, that are in some ways projected onto movements through the technology of the cinema at the time, which differs from the moment we're in now in that the way in which people understand in far-right movements their relationship to each other is through the practice not necessarily of myth, but of conspiracy. 
which strikes me as a subtly different kind of technology. And the subtle difference that I want to kind of point to is that it is not distributed by some sort of central organization saying, this is the symbol, this is the propaganda, but instead is constructed by each person individually out of the desiccated neoliberal life world in which they live. They pick up little bits and pieces and then produce some sort of grand signification out of them, which allows them to understand their relationship to each other. And so I wondered if you could speak to how you see the relationship between, on the one hand, conspiracy, on the other hand, myth. That's a really um, interesting way of linking, I suppose, two moments in the book. One is um, me engaging with, or even just just quoting some of the work of uh, Jairus Banerjee on on Sartre and and the politics, cultural politics of fascism, and, and the other one being the chapter on the Italian mythologist uh, Fulvio Iesi on uh, on right wing culture. Fascinating character, by the way. People should look up this guy if they haven't, because I don't think anyone's ever heard of him. But fifteen-year-old uh, Egyptologist, extraordinary. Yeah, there's there's even a, there's even a short a short documentary that I helped put together, or documentary is set of interviews about Yezi you can find uh, you can find online. Um, definitely, uh, and a number of, of books that I've translated or helped translate. So yeah, highly recommend. Um, I guess we could. Um, broach this in terms of what the narrative or narrative political modalities of the right or of fascism are. Uh, of course, the, the conspiratorial ones have a long history, but we can also note that the narrative mode and the communicational media through which via the Tsarist secret service, something like the protocols of the elders of Zion is spread is, you know, very different than uh, the, uh, you know, build your own adventure, massive parallel formation yeah. of something like QAnon, right? And I guess we could also speculate, which, you know, I, I, I don't do in the book, though I should in as much as I teach in a communication department uh, on the ways in which, <laughs> you know, certain forms of uh, algorithmic organization are actually, you know, really central to how serialities become pseudo groups, at least, right, or, or pseudo collectives in our own present, you know, how people are. Or how, uh, yeah, pe people and their statements and their their narratives are uh, clustered and linked and networked uh, together, right? But I think it's a really it's a really important um, issue. Um, what what does it mean to think through fascism and to think through fascist propaganda when it is not a unilateral? and centralized uh, product, right? Of course, we shouldn't overemphasize the quote-unquote democratic or horizontal character. I think that's very important, but at the same time, there are, of course, extremely significant nodes and propagators and propagandists and technologists, or at least people who, who, want, uh, who want to present themselves as such, right? That said, um, I mean, I'm very, you know, I'm very struck, uh, and here I think there is an important difference with previous moments of how, what for want of a better word, we could call, you know, fascist memes, right, or ideologies of sorts, have such an extreme um, and extremely homogeneous spread um, globally, right? 
the ways in which you can see, you know, speeches by Duterte in the Philippines of or Bashar al-Assad in Syria that, you know, when dubbed or subtitled, have remarkable levels of convergence with, you know, Ron DeSantis or, you know, uh, bits of Giorgia Meloni on The Great Replacement or whatever, right? So that I think that's a really striking phenomenon to me, right? Um, which is, which I suppose has to do with whatever the culture industry, to use an anachronistic term, uh, might mean today, right? Um, that even though we have uh, socially and politically very specific contexts and conjunctures, nevertheless, at the level of discourse, right? Like at the level of the superstructure, so to speak, right? There is this uncanny, uh, disturbing level of redundancy and, and convergence. So, uh, so and, you know, which is consolidated and um, spread, of course, also with the horizontal uh, participatory uh, mechanisms of ideological production that you were you were alluding to, right? I, I don't have like, you know, a, a media theory of late fascism, so to speak, though I probably should, but I think that's a really critical issue. And I think there's an, an element of it that is also an interesting or important variation on something that Adorno already noted, and I think I treat to some extent in the book, in his writings about you know Freud and the pattern of fascist propaganda in the in the early fifties, where he really foregrounds what he calls the phony fanaticism, right? The phony fanat already in the phenomenon of Nazism, right? So this is another element, right? Like we think of Nazism as this. Um, and again, this is like the totalitarian framing as well, right? The framing of political religion. So we think of Nazism as like not a phony, but like a real fanaticism, right? Of complete subjective um, subjugation to the Fuhrer and untrammeled belief and et cetera, et cetera. And, and um, Adorno cautions, cautions very strongly against that to say, well, actually, it's not at all clear that the Nazi militant believes in the racial myths or in any of uh, in any of the propaganda in the way that we think belief operates, right? As like a coherent, as a totalizing, etc. phenomenon. And he notes that kind of disjunction, but then adds the corollary that that doesn't make the phony fanatic any less violent. In fact, they potentially makes it even more violent. Because when their pseudo belief is challenged, they they lash out in a sense, right? And I think that's also significant. Of course, with all the due differences and variations, it's also significant vis-a-vis the phenomena that you were mentioning, right? Um, the, the the conspiratorial narratives in the present that they don't necessarily need to take the form of what we imagine a kind of political religious belief or full conviction to be, right? They can operate very well with, uh, well, many people are saying, you know, those those formulations, right? Like the other believes that, I'm just passing this along, right? It's also one of the one of the tropes in, in Trump's speeches that was obviously pointed out, you know, 
many people are saying, lots of people are thinking that kind of like constant form of disavowal, plausible deniability, but nevertheless constantly reiterating the same, you know, toxic uh, talking points, right? Adorno makes that argument um, in the context of thinking about what he describes uh, as the the movement of spirit, right? The the sort of the world's like the transformation of of world spirit, and that we have reached a level of rationalization in society that disallows the kind of way in which, for example, someone in the 1600s might have like believed in witches in a really really clear like this is a belief that I have in witches. There are witches in the world way as opposed to in the basement of the pizza parlor where Hillary right, Clinton uh, is. Uh, you know, harvesting the brains of children or whatever. But I think we can probably, with maybe Adorno, disavow the idea that there's sort of historical progress, right? That there mm-hmm. is a there is a kind of a, a necessary uh, teleology to that process of rationalization. And to put it really simply, mm-hmm. like maybe we have gone backwards. Maybe there is a, a process of de-rationalization as well, such that I think people who enter into the sort of the QAnon dream world, let's say, at least some of them, seem to genuinely believe in quite a profound way that they have found something transformational for themselves and for the world. And I think this is, you know, it's, it's important to note that when Adorno is also writing about fascism, he is still writing fascism at that moment as a mass movement. Yeah. And he's not saying Hitler doesn't believe, or he's not saying that Reinhard Heydrich doesn't believe. He's not saying like these kind of figures of the Nazi regime themselves don't believe. No, he's talking about the... The mass character, right? The the Yeah, the mass character, the person at the rally, yeah. I wanted to go back to this selection of examples you gave earlier. Duterte, mm-hmm. Bashar al-Assad, Bolsonaro, and so on. And you mentioned that there's a sort of a, a, something perhaps missing in the book, which is this thorough engagement with the political economy of the particular kind of fascist regimes. Um, and it strikes me that that distribution of countries is surprising, right? That the Philippines and Syria, perhaps, and Brazil, and the United States, and France, and Italy, and you know, a bunch of other countries around the world would all simultaneously have this. And maybe it's to do with the sort of superstructural character, the immensely sort of phantasmagoric character of contemporary forms of fascism, that they're able to have these memes, which of course have almost no weight, slip around the world and become this sort of global network of ways of thinking about the world, rather than needing to be responding to particular local conditions. And I wonder if you think that that superstructural character, the sense that that politics is in some sense unmoored from economic concerns is also a particularly key moment of uh, aspect of the moment we're seeing today. Yeah, I, I wonder about the nature of the unmooring. On the one hand, none of these, I wouldn't want to say movements, but nevertheless, you know, none of these political moves or none of these regimes, uh, none of these parties would be where they are, did they not have, you know, often massive um, economic support that you imagine if you presume that capitalist actors, at least to some extent, operate strategically, you know, you want to think not that, you know, there's some kind of 1930s Yorgi Dimitrov, you know, like, this is the most brutal wing of finance capitalism, etc. But you want to think that there's like, that, that there are forms of rationale, right? And, and it's not like these rationales are necessarily solely economic, right? Yeah, when Christian Zionist 
businessmen fund, you know, projects uh, to to support the farthest right settler movements in Israel, etc. Of course, there's both those elements are at stake in in in, in a ways that can't necessarily be be teased apart, right? So I I don't think the politics is unmoored in uh, in a material sense, but I think it is kind of discursively unmoored, right? Like there's a way in which the the discourse of the far right is so uh, you know and you is is so um, focused on sometimes deliriously phantasmagorically superstructural issues, right? Um, that you can't but see it as a global phenomenon of, of diversion or distraction from the utter incapacity and unwillingness to transform every, anything that has to do with the social conditions of production, reproduction, and livelihood, right? Even in a fascistic mode, right? Like that's the thing. It's not. It's it's not that you expect them to you know to deal with mass inequality, etc. But you 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 might expect ethno nationalist fascist movements that sell themselves in a populist vein to actually propose, right? Like you know, racially directed redistribution or whatever, right? But but that's not the case, right? Like the 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 case is largely that they deal in purely psychological wages, right? Or, or in, in, in the kick, the kick of, uh, of giving license to the most obscene forms of discriminatory speech and action with the um, mobilization of the instincts of censorship and stigmatization and scapegoating, etc. So I think in that sense, and, and that's also um, definitely a difference with the ideological mix of, of 30s fascisms that, of course, engaged in all of the mythical and narrative and superstructural and phantasmagorical uh, work, but that also presented themselves to their mass movements and to their capitalist backers as a fix, right? And as a durable fix to real material crises, right? To questions of unemployment, to questions of geopolitical power, and so on and so forth. And that does not at all seem to be the, the you know, the dominant mode, right? This is also why I think a lot of the people who are skeptical of the fascism talk in the US context noted how of course, there was a massive rise in the license given to racist speech and racist practice and all of these uh, incursions into the domain of education and so on and so forth. But that materially, like materially speaking, there was also something extremely weak or ineffectual about, say, the, the Trump administration as well, right? And that also we, we underestimate how much continuity there was and is in a whole set of policies, right? Um, including the you know brutal policies at the Mexico border, which you know are were not generated or invented. They were worsened and they were advertised and propagandized and delighted in by by Trump. But there was almost a kind of difference between, you know, between those, you know, between the Democrats doing mass deportations. And then 
the Republicans doing the mass deportations and then celebrating them as like, you know, that, that there, there is something I think also, and I guess that's where we go back to the question of the relationship between far-right authoritarian and fascistic politics and liberalism. One of the traits, I think, certainly in advanced so-called liberal capitalist economies of this um, turn to the right is a way of delighting in or assuming almost subjectively the structuring violence of the society you already live in, right? It's like the thin blue line. It's the celebration of cops and carcerality and military violence. But all of those things have been generated, produced, reproduced, funded by liberals, right? It's under liberals that you've seen some of the highest rises in mass incarceration, imperialist war, et cetera, et cetera. But there's that that extra kind of license to enjoy, right? License to enjoy the structuring violence and to affirm it as such, which I think has a particular power, not just in the U.S. context, of course, in other ones as well. And I think that's one of the the features, right? And lastly, I guess, which relates to it, it's one of the themes that I sort of pick up on maybe towards the end of the book. I think there's a, an element of um, fascism that that framing through the all-powerful state neglects and ends up um, occluding its links, for instance, to histories of settler colonialism, which is this delegation of either the practice or or the you could say the enjoyment the jouissance of violence right and that i think is really uh extremely significant the ways in which for instance even in contexts that are very different that don't have that settler frontier history like in continental europe one of the things that brings the far right movements together is for instance the emphasis on increasing gun ownership uh, on so-called self-defense, on the the kind of the militia type or vigilante type imaginary is extremely strong. And I think the fact that fascism is not just, and at times not even primarily, about the monopolization of violence, but it's a kind of selective delegation to um racially or nationally entitled petty sovereigns to engage in that, in that violence is really significant, Uh, especially, one might add, in the broader context of uh, largely neoliberal forms of of governance, right, where where actually there's there's an affinity, maybe even an elective affinity, between that feature of fascism and then the kind of privatization of violence and of so-called security that is so central to the world we live in. I want to come back to all of that in just a second when we think about the relationship between that process of deputization and the recent news that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, has begun to directly arm the most radical settlers um, in response to the, the attack on October the 7th. Um, and I want to ask about the sort of wider dynamic of becoming fascist in the in the Israeli context, because obviously, for very obvious reasons, it's a it's a very kind of nuanced and knotty um, question. But before I do that, I want to go back to what I see really as sort of the heart of and the 
most contentious and therefore the the most interesting part of of the book for me, which is this question of of racial fascism. And you noted that the policies that were put in place at the Mexican border, for example, we could also speak of the the drone war, for example, prosecuted famously uh, extremely extensively under Obama and then merely continued under Trump, are all policies of, of Democrats. And a third thing we might add to that list is mass incarceration as a, a policy. You note in your book that the kinds of insights that were gleaned from the experience of mass incarceration by the black radical tradition allow us to see racial fascism in its continuity and not in its difference with Mussolini and Nazism and so on. Can you just explain to us what the significance of that experience of mass incarceration is and how it allows us to form particular kinds of uh, insight? Well, I think that the significance of that experience, certainly as it's articulated, especially by Angela Davis in the early 70s, is the insight into the differential experience of social and state violence, right? That can be seen to operate within regimes that are uh, political systems that are putatively liberal, right? And the presence of enclaves or large social areas or spaces of basically organized racial terror, which is maybe one way that we could define fascism by shorthand, I think is is extremely significant to the articulation, especially in the 60s and 70s, right, of that idea of a, of a, of a new fascism. Um, now, that doesn't mean, should not mean, and it certainly didn't mean for Davis, quite different with George Jackson, who basically says that reformism, liberal reformism, is the highest stage of fascism, right? Davis has a quite a different perspective. She, she does argue that, you know, that the thresholds matter, right? So that it does, it does matter both the intensity and the expanse of these forms of violence and significant. And I think identifying the material bases for fascist politics in, exist in the existing forms of racial capitalist liberal states doesn't mean that the intensification and the subjective assumption of that violence by particular political movements or regimes is insignificant, far from it, right? So it's not to say that liberalism is virtually fascism or that it's like in embryo, but it is to say, and this is also, I suppose, at the subjective level, part of the point of the authoritarian personality, for instance, right? It's to, it's to say that we do need to identify, analyze, and name very specific fascist potentials, right? And potentials that both have long historical and ideological roots in histories of slavery and racism and settler colonialism, but also have synchronically speaking, right, like material structures of violence 
in mass incarceration, in border regimes, in um, policing that uh, present, you know, all of the all of the elements that are also um, there for the taking, right? And 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 for the for the, therefore the taking by by movements or regimes that can intensify and also to some extent transform, right? Those those um, those state capacities into ones that are capacities wielded explicitly, you know, for the sake of racial terror or domination and so on and so forth, right? And I think um, we can also, yeah, we can also see the the signs and symptoms of that in a in a way that's very clear uh, to to hint towards your next question in the in the mutations of the uh, Israeli um, regime and the Israeli state right which are multiple and with a proviso that I am no authority and expert on the matter but where, where I think you see like, you see very clearly uh, in the debate of the liberal Zionist Israeli left, let's say, as it appears in the English language pages of Haaretz. That's what, uh, you know, that's my sample, so to speak. You see both the, the force or at least the initial force of that fascism analogy and all of its limits, right? Because you see the way in which there is little recognition of the ways in which what is happening is both, and what was already happening, right, before uh, uh, the recent onslaught, what was happening within Israel was in many ways perfectly continuous, right? with the structures of apartheid, with the structures of racial domination that define Israeli settler colonialism, but was also a very, uh, you know, a significant mutation, right? And, and one has to hold those two things together, but not an exception, right? Not some kind of caesura that, you know, and that, that's, I, I think that's also one over and above the case of Israel-Palestine. I think that the way that debate plays out amongst liberal Zionists is also symptomatic for other contexts, right? Because it shows all of the limits of naming fascism as an exception and a break rather than as the emergence or intensification or the coming to the surface uh, for some, right? Like, because the, you know, it's not like the experience of, um, of of Palestinians was fundamentally changed by the emergence of Ben Gavir and Smotrich into the cabinet, right? I mean, um, that's where the differential experience is 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 extremely uh, uh, obvious, right? But I think that logic of of exception then is also a way of blinding oneself or occluding. Uh, uh, those continuities, right? There's a very good piece from a couple of years ago by Cy Englert precisely about this. I think the title is Smoke and Mirrors, right? The ways in which periodically um, liberal Zionism presented fascism as the uh, the threat to 
the um, the coherence and uh, and 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 uh, the welfare right of of, uh, of of the so-called Jewish democratic state right uh, as a way of disavowing <laughs> that in some sense that fascist discourse and that fascist practice was just assuming or making explicit some of the structuring relationships that made that state possible, right? And and that's very explicit even in the discourse of some of the farthest right, you know, uh, on the spectrum of uh, uh, Israeli politics, where they will say things like, yeah, but none of you ever wanted to give them a state. We're just saying it, right? Like, none of you so-called leftists or liberals really intended to do any of those things you say. And we're just the ones who tell it like it is, right? And I think that that move is also is striking as, a, as an index, right, of the ways in which the, the discourse of fascism or the analogy of fascism, right, and, and in, in that liberal Israeli discourse is often uh, a provocative analogy to, to Nazism. And, you know, it, it, it actually does, ironically, like parenthetically, like Haaretz, like uh, falls foul of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism like every other day because they say things like, oh, this is like, you know, Israel's behaving like Nazi Germany in 1933, right? Things for which you could, you know, lose your job or be canceled or whatever in an Anglo-American context, like are not that like shocking in Israel, right? But I think the analogy is still limiting because it doesn't talk about the specificity of that process. And it sees this as this kind of static boogeyman or threat, right? You talk about fascism at another moment as uh, conservative politics of antagonistic reproduction and reproduction of society, reproduction of social relations, reproduction of the uh, capitalist social relations in particular have been, as you mentioned before, in a period of prolonged crisis. That crisis is then joined in the immediate future by climate change. And one of the things that is particularly kind of striking about um, contemporary uh, far-right movements or far-right politics is that it's often, although not exclusively, very important to be not exclusively, often climate denialist. Mm -hmm. How do you see fascism as integrating something like a nature politics, a feeling of uh, a nature in disarray? And what might this mean for movements on the far right? The climate denialism is interesting if we're going to talk about the, the superstructure, so to speak, because my hunch, so to speak, because it's not it's not really like a, a studied or, or researched hypothesis, but I think that at the deep level, at the level of the political, ecological, unconscious, I don't think the far right really is climate denialist in the sense that, and that's why I guess what I meant by antagonistic reproduction. I think, in fact, the widespread and perfectly realist sentiment of you know, catastrophe collapse and therefore of, of rapidly uh, diminishing resources and possibilities for livelihood or even survival has accelerated, right? That sense of the, you know, of the armed and ethnically exclusive lifeboat politics, right? Um, and I think something that was, that was already very powerful in the... Uh, anti-immigrant um, politics, especially of the European far right, 
which is the sense of a kind of historical and economic pessimism, so to speak, that actually we are in interminable stagnation. There isn't going to be enough economic growth to go around. Even redistribution is a limited prospect. And therefore, you know, you have to pull up the drawbridge and arm it and so on and so forth. I think that has only been ratcheted up by the reality and the felt reality, I think, including amongst the nihilists, right, of, of climate change. And I think part of the denialism is uh, has to do with uh, the, the ticket thinking, so to speak, to go to that Adornian term, right, uh, Frankfurt School term, whereby the opposition to the supposed threat of the left or the woke or the communists or whoever is in opposition to everything that their uh, um, that your enemy um, uh, believes in or promotes right so you're a climate denialist in the same sense that you're a transphobe and you want to abolish critical race theory you know it all kind of comes roughly as a package right and then you find kind of ways, uh, exceptions, whereby then, yes, you are, you know, the climate thing is a lie, but, you know, you want clean air and, and, and then you, you uh, and, and... Microplastics or, uh, or receipts or soy. Yeah. Pick your poison. Or chemtrails or whatever. Yeah. So I think, I think that's my sense, right? Like my sense is, uh, and that's what I guess I meant by antagonistic reproduction is a bit of a wordy way of putting it, but the sense that your, your um, survival and well-being depends on the exclusion and, and domination of others, right? And I think this, it's put in a fairly extreme way, but I think it's, uh, it's a compelling one, you know? This uh, is the real... Uh, provocative insight behind the response of the Colombian president to the onslaught and ethnic cleansing uh, of Gaza, right? To say that this is what politics will look like. This is, you know, I think the phrase that he uses is, you know, Gaza is the first experiment to what it looks like to make um, to make people disposable in this context, right? So when he, when he uses again, it's like, I'm, I'm uh, with all my cautions, obviously, about the politics of analogy, but that provocation, he says, oh, this is a global 1933 in the sense of it's this moment where um, fascism is uh, articulated as a practice, not just around specific contexts of domination and resistance, etc., but involves this broader wielding of mass violence against populations that will increasingly be viewed as disposable in uh, the, the context of cascading resource collapse and so on and so forth, right? And, um, and there is also, in a very material sense, a climate politics to what's happening in Gaza, right? Uh, there's a politics of aquifers. There's a politics of the effects of climate change on the Gaza Strip itself. There is the ways in which nature or natural resources or material resources have been weaponized, you know, against uh, populations. All of that, I think, is 
is certainly uh, uh, worth keeping in mind. Um, but I, I think that, all, you know, uh, it's not like a fine-grained, nuanced analysis of what's going on. But I, I thought it was a, yeah, I thought it was an, an, an important provocation on his part to think, well, what, what if we see this not just as, the, the, in many ways, the, the, the worst acceleration of this process of colonialism and ethnic cleansing in the context of Israel-Palestine, but also as an, as an index of the kind of violence and the kind of justifications for violence that uh, will be increasingly the case given the planetary context of capitalism and climate change. I'm compelled by the law of podcast form to offer you the opportunity to say something hopeful and optimistic now. Uh, and I'm going to ostentatiously deny you, myself, and all the listeners that opportunity. Uh, and we'll just instead say uh, that late fascism is available now from Verso and you should buy it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Richard. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.